the Dhamma or the way things are. So the Buddha represents that was uh, say the Buddha uh, who lived in India 2,538 years ago was a human being who who real who knew that who who realized that very obvious truth and then he established his teachings so that we uh, that the teachings that we have are pointing to that truth if we use them in the right way then we then we can uh, uh, realize the Dhamma the truth of the way it is so here at Amravati the uh, this is our Tenth Katina, and uh, the uh, this we've been here uh, eleven years in this uh, particular spot, and as you can see, as uh, you no doubt haven't uh, missed the, the actual building of the temple that's taking place outside, uh, and this of course is a is a grand occasion where actually um, a proper uh, Buddhist uh, temple and Uposata Hall, uh, a meditation hall, uh, is being constructed. And it was two years ago, in this month, that we obtained the planning permission from the district council uh, in uh, Decorum, Hemel Hempstead, uh, to build this this building. And it's going along very well. It's been very well organized must say the committee involved, both the monastic and the lay, the English Sangha Trust, and the architect and the builders and so forth have done an excellent job in uh, making it so that it is not a burden or uh, a, a real unpleasant experience for any of us. One anticipated it to be um, much more disruptive and, and problematic than it has been so far. In fact, it's been very interesting to be able to watch uh, the process taking place where we actually, um, the, the last uh, march, the bhikkhus from all different uh, monasteries came and took down the old Dharma Hall and the old uh, meeting hall that, was, that used to be out there. Uh, uh, took down the, the, the two buildings. And then uh, last uh, May, we had the Sima or we had the um, um, groundbreaking ceremony where the uh, Sri Lankan High Commissioner and the uh, representative from the Thai Embassy came, and Tanjau Kun Panyananda from Thailand was there to a uh, ceremonial custom of breaking the ground. And then uh, we had the Sima ceremony during, uh, uh, I think, in June or July. July, I think it was. Establishing the the sima or the ordination boundary, and then on it goes into actually the foundations uh, being dug, and the there's 900 uh, tons of cement poured into the soil out there. <laughs> so that's uh, it's on very firm foundations. So and all your generosity has been most appreciated. Some of you might think. Your money is being poured into the ground, <laughs> and it is. <laughs> that's just some of it. That's uh, necessary to have a foundation before you can build a temple. Uh, and then the, then now the the walls are coming up, and and eventually, and by uh, December next month, they'll the uh, frame, which is the 
uh, green oak is being made right now in a place near Bath where uh, the Carpenter Oak uh, Company is specializes in this old construction of green oak, uh, timber buildings. And I've been there twice to see it, and it was very impressive, very beautiful uh, what they're doing. You know, the, the, uh, the idea of this temple is um, the, the somehow here in England people don't want anything new to look new. So we're trying to make it look old when it's new. So if you know the the sign the, the the plaque the bronze plaque that we had made to commemorate the groundbreaking ceremony, I was a bit shocked actually when they brought this bronze plaque in, this brand new plaque with our name sits right over there against the wall under that portrait and brought it in brand new and then then the architect and the the plaque maker poured acid over it to turn it green so it looks about five thousand years old. <laughs> This is a very English thing, I think. It's not, uh, <clears throat> and I'm getting used to it. <laughs> and so the temple, by the time it's built, will look at least a thousand years old. You know? But it will be very uh, the, the the materials and the uh, the uh, uh, that are going into it. I really like it. Uh, uh, you know, I think it will be a very very beautiful building and some a place that we'll all appreciate. Many people have questioned the you know the expense and so forth of building uh, such a, a, a high quality building uh, and the cost. But uh, I wouldn't have started the project if I didn't feel that the, uh, that it, the costs and expenses would be covered because I'm very, very, people made very strong commitments and, and generous donations so that such a, a building can be built here in England. And so because of those uh, donations, we've had many, uh, many from Thailand, especially from the royal family and from various other people have contributed generously to this, this project. Uh, here in England, and the, because there's so much interest in it, uh, in in the, this temple, in what we're doing here, the the monastic, uh, the the monasteries here in in Britain, and in in the ones we have in Europe, because uh, of one thing, they <coughs> I remember in Thailand they would they would say things like uh, they kind of apologize. They say we were just a backward country. You know, we didn't, uh, you, you know, I said, I'm from, uh, they said, where are you from? I said, from Seattle, Washington. They said, oh, that's where the Boeing's air, where you make Boeing airplane. I said, yes, that's one of the native crafts. <laughs> and then he said, and they said, oh, we just know how to make ox carts here. So they were kind of looking down on themselves as being backward while we were very sophisticated. And, and so... One time I had the o o occasion to, when people were doing this, uh, say, talking like this to me, I said, but you know, you, uh, your foreign aid is the best. I said, what do you mean? I said, you, you're sending us Buddhism in the, in, here in Britain. I said, that's foreign aid at its very best. <laughs> we, in Americans, we send you cruise missiles. We send Britain cruise missiles. <laughs> uh, 
Americans, we, 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 we're very clever, but foreign aid is not at its best. <laughs> so Buddha Dhamma is, uh, is a beautiful gift uh, to, the, to the world, and this is the Lord Buddha, of course, uh, you know, even though it's an ancient religion in terms of our human uh, sense of time, uh, 2,538 years ago seems like a long time ago in, in the way we perceive time. But I found this teaching of the Buddha something that, that is uh, so realistic and so true and so valid that it's, uh, that it's really timeless. It has nothing to do with, with a particular civilization or a culture. It's, it's, uh, it's about, it's a, it transcends any culture that, it, that, it, uh, that it's existing in. It transcends Sri Lanka and Thailand and India and Britain. It's transcend because the teaching is, is a universal teaching, not just a, a kind of cultural, uh, perceptual teaching. And then what I mean universal is it's, it's pointing to that which is a, get where, we where we get beyond just the cultural conditioning of our mind. You can see all the problems of the world are around ethnic attachments, religious prejudices, racial prejudices, class biases, and so forth. You heard the, the, that the uh, um, prime minister in Israel, uh, Mr. Rabin, was assassinated. That was done not through uh, understanding the truth of the way it is, but through the, the biased view of, of somebody who, who saw, only that, saw only somebody as uh, a danger or an enemy to them. But when we see things in terms of Dhamma, then, then of course, we're, we're realizing a universal truth. It's a transcendent reality that we're resting in, that, that is something where the, that the problems on the other levels, between individuals, between uh, ni nations or ethnic groups or races or whatever, are, are kind of fade into insignificance because they're not, they're, they're in a perspective of, of, of uh, Dhamma, rather than highly charged with prejudice, biases, delusions of the mind. But if we, if we don't have Dhamma, if we don't have that ultimate reality to, and we don't realize that, then we ourselves get caught in, the, in all the greed, hatred, and delusion that we produce in our minds, or the way we get intimidated by the uh, greed, hatred, and delusions of others. And so the... the world is the way it is, uh, endless conflicts and, and suspicions and hatreds and problems due to not realizing the truth, the universal reality that we are all uh, can all realize through mindfulness. When we awaken the mind, when we pay attention to life. And that's also both, on, both through uh, the objects of our senses as well as internally. We, we can hear, we can, we can hear and listen to the, the kind of uh, things that go on in our mind. The fears, the desires, the loves, the hates, the, the biases, the sense of ourself, uh, and all that, all that that, uh, that tra uh, goes on inside the mind. We, in, when we're mindful, we can be aware of that also, not just of external things that we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, but also of thought and emotion that we're feeling in the present.
Well, this is a, even though one can describe it in this simple way, to do it is, is quite a challenge because we do live in a world that, that is basically deluded. Here in Britain, even though it's, it's a very nice country to live in, it's basically deluded country, just like every other country. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, uh, and, and then everybody uh, subscribes to the delusion the modern attitudes or the old ways or whatever particular uh, alignment you choose, uh, whether you're a, a, a modern uh, fashionable person or an old-fashioned person or an immigrant or whatever, we all have our particular bias and our particular angle. But when we are mindful, then we can be aware of that for what it is. as a bias, as something that, that arises and ceases. Uh, not something to act upon. Say if we're if we're if we're getting messages to to do something harmful to somebody else, uh, then we can be aware. You know, we can be aware of that kind of emotion where we want to seek revenge or do something to harm somebody else or say something that is unkind to somebody else. And then uh, when we're aware of it. That which is aware uh, is our refuge. That awakened state where we are the witness to these conditions and no longer caught uh, in the power and the impact of those delusions as, they ha as we happen to be experiencing them. A temple is also a good reflection uh, because it is a place for contemplation contemplation, ability to, to bring into our conscious experience the way things are. Like as human beings, um, say we just reading, somebody gave me the Sunday Times this morning, reading the Sunday Times. That's uh, how many problems that, that uh, people have here in Britain, just over little trivial things. And, and some are quite important also. And then there's the international scene, and then the, the business, and the sports, and, the, and uh, the North, and the South, and the Scots, and the English, and the, the Irish situation, and then it goes on and it spreads out all over. Just the, the, uh, the, the excitement of news about what's going wrong. And yet, you say, in a, in here today, say you come here to Amravati to, uh, to not to, to seek excitement, to gossip or to do anything bad, but to, to come here to, re to give dana, to receive the, to reaffirm the five precepts, the three refuges and the five precepts, uh, perform the kitin, offering the kitina cloth, and then uh, offering of food and so forth, and then, then all the rest, I say, is, a, is an auspicious day. And everything that we're doing today is, is something that's good, something that's beautiful, something that, that brings us joy and happiness when we contemplate what we're actually involved in. Because uh, the ability to be generous, for example, just to, to, uh, to give something to somebody else, like putting rice into a, to a, to an alms bowl or something of this, this as simple as that is, is still something, uh, a custom that is, that uh, say we feel a joyfulness and a happiness in being able to, to offer something to somebody else without seeking 
anything in return. In sometimes in Buddhist countries, uh, merit making is put on a level of of making deals where you you offer something in order to get some kind of uh, accumulated merit. It was like somebody up in heaven keeping a a record of uh, how much merit you've made, and then it determines where you're going to be reborn when you die. And uh, this this kind of thinking is is one way of looking at it. One can look at it in that way. And it's certainly better than just being totally selfish and stingy. But then the real joy comes in in uh, giving and sharing what we have without expecting anything in return. And to be able to do that, that takes that takes a real faith in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, in the in the refuges of Buddha and Dhamma and Sangha. Because we're <coughs> our generosity and our and our kindness to others then is something that's very pure because we're not and we're not making deals or trying to make points with anything but just doing something that we know is 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 pure and good and with no strings attached and of course that is the the highest form of of uh, punya or merit so and that's also the result of that is a joyfulness so when we when we share what we have with others then we have this sense of joy, yeah. where if, we, if we're expecting something back, then if we don't get what we expect, then we feel miffed or offended or upset by not getting uh, what, we, what we think should be uh, the, the, the reward for, do it, for giving. In Thailand, you, know, you, go, you go on the alms round and people give you things and we are trained not to even acknowledge it to say thank you, anything. We're not even supposed to say thank you. And this was very hard, I found, because in America, we say thank you for everything. It's a kind of nervous habit. And somebody steps on your foot and you say thank you. <laughs> so then in Thailand, I'd have to kind of tie my tongue down because I was very thankful. I was so touched by the fact people would would care about me and want to offer me food and things like this, so requisites. And, and then, of course, immediately the first uh, impulse would say, thank you, thank you, very, very kind of you. And then, then you'd get, the, they kind of go into a freeze of, you know, they shouldn't be saying that. Uh, because the idea there is that you're kind of, uh, if, if, if you're thanking them, that's kind of taking away their merit. <laughs> Because <laughs> they're getting a reward, you know, something from me back, and, and so even that can be a bit silly in a way, you know, that uh, that they're going to make less merit if the monk thanks them than if they if the monk doesn't. So th this isn't isn't that necessarily the way it is either in terms of of merit, but it's also uh, a good reflection on how we do attach to ideas and and views and that. Uh, uh, from our culture, from our background, from our ethnic uh, conditioning. Like for an American to not be able to say thank you is very difficult. And it took a lot of training. Now, now I, uh, uh, here in, in Britain, where people aren't, where people, uh, you know, uh, don't feel like that, one can say thank you or, 
or say express appreciation uh, because the, the the attitude is isn't is is a different one in regards to uh, generosity and sharing. But also, it's a good reflection how uh, how even the desire to be thanked somehow is le- is destroying the joy of of generosity because if if you aren't thanked, then you, one can feel uh, kind of offended or hurt because you weren't acknowledged or appreciated. And the idea then is to really give uh, as a, as because it, it, it in itself is its own reward. Generosity. Morality, the sila. Uh, this, uh, I mean like in, in uh, the, we say dana sila pawana, or the, 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 the generosity is a kind of basis, the first step towards, say, a religious uh, or spiritual development, or development as a, as a proper human being, based on generosity, or dana. And then the, then the second is sila, which is uh, or morality. And so then morality does take more commitment, doesn't it? Dana, I mean, even, uh, uh, even the mafia can give dana. But... Uh, <laughs> But to keep Sila, that'd be very hard for them, I should think. Or <laughs> they wouldn't be the mafia anymore. And they, so Sila is is taking on even more uh, responsibility for for what we for how we live, what we do with our with our bodies, how we use our bodies, how t- how we uh, how we use our ability to speak in the society, so that we're we're taking on responsibility and not using ourselves for harmful or cruel or exploitive or foolish uh, activities that harm ourselves or harm others or harm the environment. In terms of the environmentalists and ecologists these days, big subject that uh, people have uh, formed a lot of opinions about and, and strong views, as you can see, the Greenpeace and the various other strong voices in terms of respect for environment but that is a, is a good point to make. We, when, we, when we have this seal, then we do respect the environment. We respect this environment. This, this, this is the environment, isn't it? This thing here, the body that we call our own, this is the environment we have to live in all the time. We can pollute it with bad thoughts, anger, and greed, and delusion, and so forth. We can, we can pollute our minds with uh, all kinds of unpleasant thoughts, resentments, uh, jealousies, fears, and just uh, live in a, in a realm of mental pollution. Or we can free, uh, not pollute our mind, because the natural state of our being is pure, unsullied. Natural state is that way. So the pollution is something we create in our minds. If we don't pollute our minds, then we we uh, we wouldn't want to pollute the environment or the planet or the pollute somebody else's mind, Beca- or to take advantage of animals or or the planet life on planet Earth or the air that we breathe or the universe that we live in, because we we respect the Dhamma. We have this respect. We have self-respect. We have. Uh, an understanding, a profound understanding of truth, 
that allows us to live in a peaceful and joyful way uh, within the limitations of our particular body and social position and so forth. We can, those things we can, we can bear with whatever they are, whether rich or poor, male or female, um, black or white or whatever. These are uh, from whatever ethnic background, these things are or abilities or talents or uh, whatever on, on the worldly plane. These, when say, when we're seeing it in the right way, then we use our talents, our abilities, our lives for what is good, what is kind, what is generous, then refrain from doing things that, that would cause harm or pollute the environment. So you can say Buddhism very not definitely is a, is a, aligns itself very well to modern e ecology. But it's getting to the real source of the problem, isn't it? Here, right in the, right where, where you are, that's the source. And as much as you want to blame the multinationals or the, or the French or whoever, <laughs> it's the, the, it starts here, and and this is where we we uh, where we tend to start the pollution process. Now, being a monk for thirty years, uh, this has been half my life as a Buddhist monk, and uh, so I feel quite uh, happy and grateful for that, having lived uh, uh, restrained in this way and under bhikkhu discipline and for a long time, long period of time, 30 years to me is a l used to be a long, it doesn't seem so long now, but it, for most people I think 30 years is a considered in one lifetime a good, you know, a good chunk of one's life. And uh, living in that, in that way within the limits of uh, Vinaya, or monastic discipline and living, uh, uh, trying to to and meditating, uh, training the mind, uh, contemplating the teachings of the Lord Buddha, applying them to my own experience, so that I'm actually, you know, I'm not just kind of repeating Buddhist words and and ideas, but I'm actually seeing them. You see, realizing the four noble truths, the eightfold path is something that's real. It's not some some Buddhist uh, idea or theory, but it's internalizing that, those truths to where you actually realize, uh, say, the, the suffering that one naturally experiences in this state, its causes, realizing the, the, the absence of suffering, the end of suffering, realizing the way to live, that you do not create suffering. And so, after 30 years, I'm getting better at it than and than I than I ever have been. I feel more confident and more uh, genuinely grateful for this opportunity uh, to live in this way. It's a bit of a surprise, actually, to uh, to you know one had never conceived an idea of being a Buddhist monk uh, before. I mean, in, when I lived in America, or that I would be living as a Buddhist monk in England. Or that I would be building a Buddhist temple in uh, Chiltern Hills, <laughs> or any of these things. These are, you know, perceptions I just couldn't. I mean, I did have. I have always kind of had an inclination towards uh, hermetic life, or towards the uh, idea of living off in in kind of forests uh, 
in a place that is uh, peaceful and calm, those, those were always attractive images. Um, but life, say, being uh, the, the, the focus of monastic communities here in, in Europe, uh, has been quite a, an interesting experience because it brings up all the, 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 the problems that you have as a human person, as a personality having to take responsibility, having to, to uh, uh, say, meet people and, and live with people uh, who are inevitably going to bring up uh, all your fears, all your desires, all your, your habits uh, through the years, you know. What, and just the, the sense of being responsible for all this uh, is... Um, uh, is, is, is another drill. Living as a hermit in the forest is a nice idea because I wouldn't be responsible for very much. And there's something lazy and, and pusillanimous about me that would like to, to live in a nice little hut and not be responsible for anything. But instead I threw myself into this life and, and here I am sitting on this high seat, building a temple and, uh, and uh, getting old and being responsible for so many things and involving all of you with it. <laughs> so how does one, you know, if, if you take it personally, then it does seem burdensome and difficult. But the, the secret to it all is to change the from the person to the, to the, they, from the personality problem, the, uh, the illusion of being a, a person and a personality to, uh, to the, to the perception of the refuges, the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Because that is the refuge. Then is 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 the reality of a moment. Uh, say that the personality of of, of Ajahn Sumato. Bhikkhu Sumato is, uh, you see, my, you might see me or think of me in a particular way as some kind of personality. But in terms of practice, the personality is not, not what I'm trying to, to project, but the sense of refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So that the, the, uh, the personality is, is uh, just what you have to, you, what, you know, the way you are and the, the, the kind of conditioning you have. And that is n that is not. And as when when I start uh, making that the important issue about what I think or what I feel as a person, what I like or don't like as a person, then I suffer in this position. But when I observe that the sense of myself as a person and and rest in that knowledge of of that this these are conditions not to attach to, then I'm taking my proper refuge uh, in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. So you see, when we all take refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, which you've just done uh, before the offering of the Katina robe and so forth, you actually, we're putting ourselves in that perfect refuge of, of that perfect state of awareness to see the truth of the way it is and to take responsibility for our lives as individual human beings. And when we do that, then the, the highly personal uh, 
things that we feel or think or our character tendencies or our, our habits and so forth are then in a perspective of Dhamma rather than, than uh, held as being kind of permanently me and mine, is my problem, the way I am as a person. Because the thing that you can really trust under all conditions at any time, wherever you are, uh, with whoever you are, whether you're alone, whether you're young or old or healthy or sickly or whatever, is you can be mindful. You aren't always going to be, what you're mindful of isn't going to always be what you want, but it's, you still can be mindful of what you don't want. And mindfulness isn't uh, picking and choosing and preferring, that's personality. As a person, then I have certain preferences. I like this better than that. And I like this color better than that color. I like this person more than I like that person. Uh, I, I want this and I don't want that. And I feel like this and I don't feel like that. And, and so forth as a person. But as a refuge, then I'm aware of all that kind of busyness, preference, love and hate, liking, disliking, that go on in the mind. And that refuge then is, is what I can trust because that's a constant factor that one can rest in no matter what is happening. In Thailand, I remember going through many periods of, you know, through the initial inspiration, enthusiasm for monastic life, and then the, the, the disillusionment, the kind of where you, you, you're, you get tired you start being critical, you get fed up, uh, you start worrying about whether the climate is too hot or whether uh, the food, you, sometimes you get malaria and get illnesses and, and it brings up all kinds of negative mental states. But these also were seen in terms of Dhamma. The important thing was to just be aware and to be patient with what you're feeling with the emotional condition that you're experiencing. And I found that a real insight. As I've said many times with malaria, malaria taught me a lot, having this um, disease where I, where I, it frightened me, I didn't want it, I wanted medicine to get rid of it. Uh, I, you know, one had all kinds of, heard all kinds of stories about how it goes to your brain, you go crazy. Uh, frightening stories about people that have died from malaria or, or been permanently brain damaged. Oh, that would be terrible to be, I mean, wouldn't die, but permanently brain damaged. Uh, and also the worry, the, the resentment, and then the teaching of observing this worry, resentment, this aversion to the actual uh, feelings of the, that the disease gives you. Suddenly I realized I could do that. I could, I may not be able to get rid of malaria the way I want to, but I can at least develop a proper attitude towards it, towards the, the sickness, towards the fever, towards the discomfort, towards the unpleasantness, even towards the fear that I would generate you know, during those times. I could change my attitude, which was one of accepting, paying attention, and reminding myself of the refuge, that the conditions that arise cease and they're not self. So this is a constant kind of practice because 
here in England, of course, we, we have to, uh, we have to, uh, we have uh, to say live in a country where uh, most people are not Buddhist. We we are kind of uh, strange-looking creatures, like Martians or somebody from another planet uh, in a society that uh, that wouldn't generally understand what what we are, what our intentions are. Where, say, in an Asian country like Sri Lanka or Thailand, Burma, you get you get so much respect and uh, and so much uh, adoration and so much attention and and kind of held up. Where here we're oftentimes uh, made fun of. But even that is dhamma. We can see the dhamma of of the result of of being jeered at or being treated uh, in an unpleasant way. That is not an obstruction to practice, is it? But the ability to observe, to witness, to see it for what it really is. All that is subject to rising, subject to ceasing. So now the the refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha is a very, very profound thing for me. It's no longer just uh, perfunctory words that you say when people ask, "Can I take the five precepts?" And you say "Buddhang Ternangachami," like a parrot. You could parrot it and just it could be totally meaningless. Or now, is it really profound because of reflecting on it, of real, of of taking that word Buddha and and say, what does that really mean right now? If we're taking refuge in the Buddha right now. What is it right now? Not no, not some abstract Buddha, some idea that there might be something called Buddha out there, or there's a Buddha energy in the universe, maybe, or some or in the uh, Gotama the Buddha who's dead. Let me say, it's a refuge now. What is that refuge in Buddha right now? And, and it's a, I realize it's the ability to pay attention right now, just this much, just this open receptivity right now. So then Buddha is my real refuge because that's, that's a refuge I can use wherever I am, whether I'm in my kuti, in my, little, in my caravan, or in, in the meditation hall in London or wherever. In airport, I can always do that. I can always be with what's happening to me, with the way things are. And then when there's Buddha, there's Dhamma. You're seeing the experiences of life that you're having in terms of Dhamma rather than in terms of, of uh, whether, you know, trying to control, manipulate, uh, run away from things and that, that we tend to do on the personal level. On the personal level, we're always... We're caught in a lot of fear and and anxiety and worry. So with a sense of manipulating life and trying to control it. But in terms of Dhamma, then we don't need to control it anymore. We 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 no longer feel obliged to to try to to hide away or or um, uh, fear anything at all because we we know how to see things. Whatever happens is our Dhamma, is the way things are for us. And they teach us sickness, illness, old age, loss of the loved, all that we most do not want, teach us the most important lessons. Not to be despised. And don't think you're, 
you know, if you're a personality that sees yourself only as a success when you're young, healthy, popular, successful, uh, approved of, and all the rest, then then if you lose it, then you're then you hate yourself. You feel like a, a failure. But in terms of dumb, a success and failure are just, are dummas. Sometimes there's success, sometimes there's failure. There, failure's like this, success is like that. But there's the knowing, there's the witness, there's the seeing it that is our refuge. We're not taking refuge in success or in failure. So we're not kind of fatalistic uh, people that just say, I can't do it and might as well just accept failure. But failure is a part of every human experience as well as success and it is impermanent, and it is not self, just like every other condition, every other experience. Also, it's important to realize that, that, the, that experience is now. I mean, it's not tomorrow. Tomorrow is, is even the perception of tomorrow is now. So, so we're, mindfulness is establishing, waking up, being receptive in the now, in the present, which is, which is a for many people, very difficult to do because we can live very much in the future. When you're young, you tend to look forward to the future. And I had uh, last week, I had a, uh, an experience uh, down at Chithurst where um, when I was in the Peace Corps in, uh, and I was in Saba in North Borneo for two years in a tiny little seaport, smuggling port, and I was not involved in smuggling. I was a fairly honest, not terribly moral <laughs> Peace Corps volunteer uh, uh, in uh, this little town of Semporna on the east coast of, of uh, Saba. And there was an American uh, girl, Peace Corps girl, who was only 22 years old. She came to the same town and, and we were quite good friends. And then when I left in 1965, uh, my contract with the Peace Corps ended. Well, that's the last time I saw this, this girl. It was 1965. And then I find that, that she's somehow uh, in England on some business trip 30 years later and wants to see me. So last Wednesday she came to Chithurst and with her husband and they... Uh, and and there I had this interesting experience to recognize she was no longer a girl, <laughs> middle-aged, 50-year-old 50, 50 uh, um, businesswoman with two grown-up children. And so we, it was uh, just, uh, uh, when, you're, when you're my age, you tend to, to appreciate these moments, to look back in life. The future is not so important at this stage, but... I find a, a kind of nostalgia for the past. And you keep thinking of people you knew. I think, wouldn't mind going to a high school reunion again in Seattle. <laughs> See what the prettiest girl in the class looked like at 62. <laughs> Wonder what all those football players that I used to envy, what, what's happened to them, what they look like. Just to see uh, what happens as the years go by. Because so much of your, your um, sense of yourself seems to be very much uh, fixed or seems to get it, it's kind of 
fixated on, on personality a lot in those teenage years. Your sense of your self-worth or your, your attitude about yourself. Those are very strong years of self-consciousness, isn't there? The, the teenage years. But anyway, um, it was a very good to see somebody uh, when you hadn't seen them for 30 years. And I could recognize her. She didn't look that much different, but older. And uh, then we talked about uh, things that happened 30 years ago when we lived in this uh, little place in Borneo. And all the people we knew and, and how much it had changed. 30 years ago, it was a, uh, a kind of backwater place. Uh, nobody ever went to Borneo. And, uh, and it had, didn't have any roads to it. It was just a, a kind of seaport that you had to go to by steamship. Or it had a tiny little airfield with, with the, where you could only use a single-engine airplane. And now, she said, she went back a couple of years ago, and it's all tourists. They have big tourist groups going out. It's great for, for uh, deep-sea diving and, or deep-sea fishing and, and for uh, uh, diving. It's, it's a beautiful place with coral waters and white sand beaches and and swaying palms and all that kind of thing. And, and I used to think this would be a great tourist attraction. And I was right. It's become, I was, feel very fortunate to have been there before it was kind of uh, made into one because I have very happy memories of those years. But they are memories that arise in the, in the present. Uh, and they are just that, that, that you find also at this age uh, an ability, some may have, maybe it's Alzheimer's disease or something, but uh, some, your memory's not so good. And suddenly, uh, uh, like the other day, somebody came to me and I couldn't remember their name, and I knew them very well. well that never happened before, but <laughs> and this this lady that uh, that I was in the Peace Corps with, she is working for a pharmaceutical company that's that's trying to find cure for Alzheimer's disease. <laughs> but Alzheimer's disease is all right too. It's just, it's just <laughs> because in the long run, you don't you don't even want your memories. You know, they they I mean, one might feel this nostalgia, but also. I'm aware of it for what it is. It's not something I'm going to, to seek as a refuge, is nostalgia for the past. Or to, to worry about the future. Uh, or to see any signs of aging and senility as, as uh, something uh, you know, that, that arouses anxiety. Or to create a problem about it. But to take it as it comes. To live life as it happens to you, the way it, it affects you. So living in, in, a, in a monastery, for example, here, uh, is uh, the Amarvati or Chitters, the different monasteries, they change. You can't keep them always on the same level of, of developing or whatever. That Things kind of go through cycles. And they, they, they have their periods where People come and go, and people like them and don't like them, and and uh, they're well received, or they're 
and then go through periods of being criticized or or people get interested in other places and so forth and so this is, this is just the way life is that we're not here to try to to you know we're not here to try to um hold it or make it into some kind of static experience for any of us but we're willing to say develop the practice around the way it is as we're living here in this this particular place and then when we do we we, we learn also how to do things better some things we we you know when you're starting places or your things are new you you're more or less doing doing it on experimentation then you as you go along you you realize what is useful what isn't what works what doesn't work what you can manage and what you can't manage and that comes not through preconceiving at all or having fixed ideas but through reflecting and noticing and observing and learning from life as we experience it because uh, life as a human being is like this it's an it's a continual experience of of something happening all the time whether we're alone or in a group there's always this sense of irritation agitation going on on towards this form uh, on this planet it's a, the experience of of this kind of ongoing agitation to the to the senses and to the mind and so that this this is just the way it is it's it's uh, this is what all human beings have to to uh, experience but how do we interpret it how do we respond to it and if we don't awaken to dhamma then we tend to react to it maybe we develop very poor reactions or very foolish reactions or maybe we have very intelligent reactions or maybe it's mixtures of intelligence and stupidity and so forth but and and also we we might like life as long as it's going well but when it doesn't then we then we hate it and resent it but if we understand that that we 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 had we do not have the power to control it and make it what we want we do have the ability to choose how we're going to respond to it when it when we're experiencing it so at every moment of our life uh here and now how are we going to respond to this moment and uh, how and the things that happen to us the praise the blame the success the failure the good health the bad health the loss of the loved the the changing conditions of life and so in in buddhist terms and the refuge in buddha dhamma sangha allows us to to use a lifetime as a human entity human individual to learn and understand things in a profound way according to universal truth not according to uh some idea of somebody else because this is a truth that we know we feel it from from your guts you something deep inside you respond to dhamma it's not just an intellectual idea or some some incredibly clever theory or philosophy uh that somebody thought up but the buddha's teaching is something that go you know when you're using it then it something you feel within you your insight knowledge is something that you know from something in you says that's it you know it isn't from it isn't from up in the brain anymore where you think it's not interesting 
Because a lot of delusions are very interesting, but not necessarily true. <laughs> but truth is something we, we, we intuitively know when we open ourselves and trust and have this faith, this, this ability to relax and to be with, uh, in terms of Buddhist, in Buddhist terminology, with the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So I think this is enough of a reflection for this afternoon. And uh, I just want to thank everyone who's been uh, uh, involved in this katina. And Ajahn Virdhamo has been uh, uh, very much a, an important uh, factor in this. He's now the abbot of this of Amravati. And, uh, and then also I think Sister Maitanandi was very much involved in organizing and, and, and uh, trying to get this thing going. And then of course to the, the uh, Malini and Sarojini and all of you who very generously donated all these, these, uh, these gifts, these offerings, requisites to the Sangha today. The, um, I'm very grateful for Ajahn Virdamo coming from New Zealand to, to take on uh, the responsibilities here. Uh, and uh, this is something that uh, uh, I used to think I would wouldn't ask of, of the, my worst enemy. <laughs> but since he's my best friend, I am. <laughs> but also, you learn a lot. And it's like... Uh, it's like I think Ajahn Amro had this simile that I like very much. Of these, he said, the Sangha life. He said, living in Sangha communities is like these, you know, these um, rock polishing machines. You know, where you get all these kind of grotty-looking rocks, pebbles. You know, they'd have no color. They're all drab and rough and and not very attractive at all. You put them all together in one of these rock polishing machines. And they rub up against each other. <laughs> and they come out, they're beautiful. You see red and yellow and green. <laughs> beautiful blue. And they're all shiny. And they, they look really precious and beautiful. And I think that some that Sangha life is like that. It's, uh, <laughs> you kind of come together in like in a rock polishing machine and you get rub up against each other and kind of wear off each other's rough edges until more and more there's a sense of the Sangha being a, a harmonious group, a mature. I feel very now that over the years that, uh, here in England that the Sangha here is, is, is it's maturing. You can see it with so many of the monks and nuns and the, the sense of their commitment and the strength that they've developed. And it hasn't been an easy ride. It's been a difficult one indeed. Uh, because and then there are also possibilities of leaving at any time. It's not anyone's tied to the, to to this way of life at all. So they've all had other options, other opportunities. But somehow that commitment and willingness to go through the process is is all definitely 
showing a, a good result. So I think we have a lot to feel proud of and feel uh, good about in the Sangha here in, in, in England at this time. Uh, and I certainly uh, enjoy living here. I, I've never, uh, even though it has its, its uh, rough moments, I've actually enjoyed living in this country, living in, in the monasteries in Chitters and Hiradamavati. Uh, because I do feel it's, uh, this teaching is something that is uh, so marvelous and so good that I wouldn't want to deny it to anyone or to, uh, or to uh, you know, just uh, seek a, a comfortable life uh, for myself on my own terms. That, that the important thing is that to to uh, make this teaching available and uh, to, to, because at this time in the world it's very much needed. We need very much to see things in the right way. If we're going to live with each other, the world population is so, you know, it's going to, it's 5.7, I've heard, latest count, 5.7 billion, then say in 50 more years maybe 10 billion, and we don't get along with each other very well. We didn't get along with each other when it was only 2 billion. So, I mean, we're, we're not terribly good at this, and it is hard work. Getting along with other people uh, <laughs> and, and developing skillfulness in living with each other, uh, as both as, as families or as, as in monasteries or as as, as neighborhoods, in communities, in, in uh, countries, and so forth. But it is possible. This is the potential. This is the, the great uh, uh, goal that, that we have, that we, you know, we, it, it is within our possibility, within our potential to do it. That we're not, I mean, none of us, none of the bhikkhus or the, or the sindaras or the, any of them, where none of us are kind of avatars, or none of us are messiahs, none of us are special creatures from outer space. We're all the most ordinary kind of human beings, just uh, ordinary people uh, who have this uh, this confidence in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So you can see that it's not uh, it's a it's a teaching that says this, this is something for humanity. It's not just for very gifted, very uh, special kinds of human beings. So I offer this as a reflection for you. And uh, uh, I have these calendars, beautiful calendars uh, for 1996. I know that's in the future. <laughs> but it won't be very long... Uh, and it'll be now. <laughs> so uh, if any of you want these calendars, I will give them out. Thank you.